Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dr. Andy Bilzak. So, today's episode marks um, the first of four panels that we're going to have over the next month uh, to commemorate the one-year anniversary of On Tenure Tracks and uh, celebrate uh, everything that we're doing, you know, in this incredibly... um, I mean, you don't need me to tell you what's going on, right? So, what we're going to be doing uh, for the next month, um, I have recorded uh, several um, panel discussions talking about how we view our work um, and we view ourselves and our work during the current crisis. And so, this first panel uh, features Dr. Matt Vogel from the University of Albany, uh, newly tenured, Dr. Bria Willingham from SUNY Plattsburgh, and Dr. Rama Kathpali from Oklahoma University. Been a great year. Uh, it still blows me away that we're we've had so much support over the last year. So thank you all again um, for supporting the show. And this is episode forty-eight of On Tenure Tracks. So, uh, this is, I think, the first version of the, the first anniversary of On Tenure Tracks, um, and this bizarre project that I've had going on for the last year. Um, this week, uh, we are going to have, I think probably it's going to be the first of a series of conversations about teaching and scholarship during the pandemic, and um, as we approach this fall semester, um, I think there's a lot of value in, in kind of comparing notes and having conversations about um, how the last several months have changed our approach to scholarship, um, our approach to our, our jobs in general. Um, and like I said, like I think this is a really important conversation to have going into this, I think what's probably going to be a pretty transformative semester um, and academic year for everybody. So um, this week on this first version of this conversation, um, right now we have... Um, a returning guest, uh, Dr. Bria Willingham. Bria, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for, uh, for thank you for doing this. It should be fun. And happy anniversary. <laughs> thank you. Um, and then a new friend um, from Oklahoma. Um, Rama, could you introduce yourself, please? So my name is Rama Kotopalli, and I'm a assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. My major focus is to run an undergraduate program where students from 16 different departments participate in the program. 16 different departments. Do you know offhand which 16? <laughs> I know it's a yeah, super unfair question, but... Departments, oh. and we have psychology as one of the social sciences. We are considering that as social sciences because psychology mm-hmm. is also part of our, our group. Cool. You know, uh, departments. Awesome. So that's got to be like a massive undertaking manage 16 undergraduates from 16 departments at a major at a major university doing research in all kinds of different ways coming to research with all sorts of different backgrounds and uh and all all freshmen wow so huge variation in like competencies and skills and 
<laughs> I, in some ways, envy you, and in other ways, I don't envy you. It's, yeah, it's got to be. I would put that on my CV as like herding cats. <laughs> Sometimes I think it is more of the getting the mentors mm-hmm. on board uh, to take on freshmen. That yeah. is more of a challenge than getting the students in. Because I have a lot more students who still participate than yeah. I can gather my mentors. Yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so uh, it's been a wild few months, but how many months now? Four, five months now for everybody? Um, and uh, as we are all aware, nothing has improved <laughs> in higher education in the last since since the middle of March. Um, at least when I went on uh, when my university shut down. Um, so, how are we? Just very broad. How are we feeling going into the fall twenty twenty semester? I feel like um, I am sinking very quickly (laughs) it's like it feels like someone has thrown me into the deep end of a pool and I do not know how to swim and um, so I am I'm drowning I feel like I'm drowning and I am hoping that I will be able to uh, find my proverbial sea legs very quickly considering the semester's first two weeks from today. So <laughs> I have been, like last week, I, I spent all last week learning, um, doing a, a training on our Moodle system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this week, SUNY system is doing these remote learning webinars. So I am um, listening to some of those. I'll, I'll be listening to some of those all week. So I'm just trying to really you know, get into this online teaching right I mean we had a we actually had a choice to do online hybrid or face to face and I just I chose online for obvious reasons um, so I'm just trying to you know just trying to just trying to figure it all out um, so I don't know I'm not I'm semi-confident I guess is a good word to say yeah. Yeah, I uh, I also had a choice, and just recently had that choice kind of changed <laughs> for me. Um, but I, I definitely empathize with the drowning. Rama, what about you? How are you? How are you doing? Uh, huh. it, it is a mixed feeling in, mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, we have uh, I'm teaching labs, and teaching biochemistry lab online is kind of not very conducive. <laughs> So labs will be face-to-face. I'm also teaching uh, face-to-face class that is already there because some students requested for a face-to-face option of that particular class. So in total, I'll probably be teaching about one face-to-face, one online. so seminar courses, which also will be face-to-face, so it will be all mixed bag. And I'm not sure, seminar courses, less than 20 students, so that should not be a problem. And uh, the lab courses, I'm a bit apprehensive about Because the lab spaces, yes, you can have social distancing, but they share the same equipment. 
So how can how can we arrange for that? That is what I am a bit skeptical about. Mm-hmm. That is what I said. Yeah. Um, so I think it was Oklahoma that went viral last week with the, the picture of a, a lecture with a plexiglass that looked like it had just been taped to uh Oh, that's Georgia. Oh, it was that's Georgia. Georgia. Okay, I thought I, maybe it was Oklahoma or something else. Um, was Oklahoma the school with the guy standing behind the plexiglass that was like a foot shorter than he was? That was Georgia. That was also Georgia. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very tall, and I saw that, and I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> I hadn't even considered that that would be a nightmare. <laughs> um, so, how do you feel about... I don't, want to, I don't want to put you in a position to put your schools on blast or say anything that could get anybody in trouble. Um, but how, do we, how do we feel about how our schools have, have approached this? I will say that, number one, I would not want to be in the position of administrators to have to make these decisions because no matter what decision they make, um, no one is going to be happy, mm-hmm. like 100% happy. Um, I I mean, I personally think that, you know, SUNY should have just said um, everyone should go online for the fall semester just as a matter of precaution, mm-hmm. but... Um, that's just a, a, my personal preference, but I also understand that um, you know administrators had a, a, a tough decision to make, and as we all know, higher education is about money, as with a lot of businesses. Well, that's what business is, right? Higher education is a business, and business is about making money. Mm-hmm. Bottom line. So I understand too that. As a matter of, of financial, uh, for financial reasons, it you know having students return, um, I would say was a um, not necessarily a priority, but it was on you know at the top of the list for financial purposes. So I don't know. I, I guess I would say all things considered, they're doing what they believe is the best choice. But I also suspect that, I don't know, I'll give it to about October. I would not be surprised if suddenly we're all, everyone's online. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Rama, how about what you? What about you? Oh, how about me? Hey. Uh, so I have tenure, so I'm in a position where I can be more critical. <laughs> Of this, <laughs> yeah. Um, I. It's so it's so clearly about money, and I think that my university um, is not being. So my university is in trouble, and like we we need we need that money. We need the tuition dollars. We they need the room and board money. Um, I, I don't really buy a lot of what they're saying about like their concern over our safety and stuff like that. And I I, I think really in general, like I I don't buy any anything from any administrator or like president or provost saying like they're we're putting student safety and faculty safety first because um, if you were, then you you would have moved online. So I, I think very very nakedly like they're putting they're putting profit first. Um, 
I think that's probably going to change, like, with some of the Big Ten, or, like, the football stuff today, the Big Ten canceling. Um, I think that's, like, a, a big domino um, that's going to fall uh, to just move everything online, which we should have we should have known was going to happen months ago. Um, so I'm not thrilled with, like, my, my school. Uh, they know I'm not thrilled. <laughs> nobody, nobody that I work with is going to listen to this probably, except for my chair, maybe, and he knows I'm not thrilled. Um, so, I mean, they've they've put some stuff in place. So, I mean, they've bought cameras. They've they've installed um, hand sanitizing stations, uh, which is which is great. Um, they've they've implemented one way staircases, which I think is not gonna work. <laughs> it's a small, it's a small campus. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think one-way staircases are going to make a difference. Not at all. Um, when students are going to be crammed into uh, the hallways before class anyway. Um, my administration has has deferred a lot to the CDC, um, but they, I think, are naive, like naively thinking that like the CDC has everybody's best interest in mind and, and the CDC hasn't become corrupted by Trumpian politics and and isn't just saying things to make him happy um, so so like for example the rules about close contact um, that you have to be within six feet of somebody for 15 minutes um, to have it considered to be close contact so basically like if a student is in the front row then and they get sick then I, I can be notified but if they're in the back row and they have it, then I don't get to be notified. That's kind of messed up, <laughs> and and really counterintuitive, and like doesn't take into the fact like the HVAC and the air cycling and all of that. Um, so to to hear that coming from administrators as like no no like we we're following CDC guidelines, that doesn't restore any of my confidence, you know, or or make me feel comfortable at all coming into work. So. Another thing that I'm concerned about um, is apparently there's um, they're implementing a new policy where students who are caught without a mask after three times they face dis- disciplinary action, um, and if they are caught more than three times um, not practicing social distancing they face disciplinary action and I'm like okay so now we're going to be policing students you know and who's going to be doing this and it it just I don't know some parts of that I mean I understand the obviously the the need to make sure everyone is practicing social distancing and wearing of the mask but to then add this extra layer of punishment. And you know everything, I always come from this place of punishment, right? Mm-hmm. And and this policing aspect. So now we're going, going to be, um, you know, uh, writing students up for, for not doing this. And that to me, I know something about that just does not sit well with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not quite sure how to, I don't know, really... Uh, adequately articulate right now why he does not sit well with me other than to say adding an extra layer of punishment and policing of students is not the answer. Yeah. And I think we know like historically that's never the answer and it's never worked. Right. <laughs> the right. only the only thing I can think of that's like even remotely similar is seatbelt laws and the implementation of seatbelt laws 
you know, as like a public health thing. Right. You know, I I I think the the furthest I'd be willing to go to tolerate that would be like very small fines mm-hmm. for students. But I don't. I mean, we were told that if students come to class without a mask, we can ask them to leave. If they don't put a mask on, if they refuse to mask up, then we have the authority to stop class. But then, like, we're punishing the other students then because of this. And, like, I know know how I would have approached this as an undergrad. And if I had a professor that I was in conflict with, um, then I'm coming to class without a mask on and being, like, I'm going to save everybody else from this awful class. (laughs) And if I have to, if I, whatever this fine is, then that's fine. People can Venmo me the cash and and I bought you a free Friday. (laughs) Like, I, I just... I, and I know it's a very small minority of students who are bad faith actors like that, but I, I think with something like this, because there's already so many opportunities that faculty have found to discipline and punish students in more ways since moving online with, like, the cameras for for proctoring exams, which are huge invasions of privacy and and just gross. Uh, I, I can totally see people, like, reverting to some kind of draconian... <laughs> Like if you don't wear your mask, you're not allowed to come to class, and your and your tuition is all gone, and like whatever else, like you're gonna write lines on the board about <laughs> I will wear a mask to class. Write that a thousand times on the whiteboard. <laughs> like, like come on, like yeah. just and, go and online. That's another reason why I say we should all we should just be online for the fall. Just I, I don't I don't know. It's it's frustrating. It, it is frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I worry, too, that it's also, like, in addition to the money from students and tuition and stuff, I, I also worry that states are waiting for money from the federal government. Like, I think it is I think it is this waiting game until October because I think there's going to be, like, a, I think Mitch McConnell is going to probably release, is going to find, like, a couple of trillion dollars <laughs> laying around to, to release to schools and, and maybe, like, the middle of October... Uh, to to pay them to go online, and then and then schools are going to be like, hot damn, like <laughs> we just got a hundred million dollars. Let's go online now. That's all we that's all we ever wanted, and it was going to be depicted as like the administration really caring about the poor students, and <laughs> this super cynical October surprise to try to buy votes. So it just means money from everybody, and we're just kind of like I, I envision like university presidents just like Oliver Twist, <laughs> just like with, with like a little tin cup. Like, can I please have some of your federal bailout money, <laughs> so so I don't have to sacrifice student and faculty and staff lives? It's just gross, you know. So Rama, what are you concerned about that you can talk about? <laughs> you can talk I, I, about. <laughs> it, 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 um, we have a lot of students who are out of state. And most of our out of state students come from Texas. Mm. And wow. if you can consider uh, Oklahoma itself having an increasing number of cases. And then Texas is almost on the top for cases. Uh, it's, it's difficult to maintain a low case level in the university. And then though they have 
this one of the good aspects I think is from our university administration is that they space the class out by half an hour. So they said, okay, let's let's let the students leave and come in and have half an hour time in between the classes so that we can take care of some kind of a sanitation or whatever you want to take care of. They also provide faculty with the disposable masks that they can offer the uh, students who forget to give their masks. Uh, so they said you can ask them. But one of the concerns I have is in case you offer a mask and the students are refusing, as uh, Andrew said, that we can dismiss the class. But what happens to the topic that you were supposed to cover during that class? Right. Right. And what about the students who are already there in the class who have come for the class specifically, especially right. if we are talking about subjects which are more, uh, let's say, more hands-on kind of expert, like experimentally, it's more hands-on. So you can't tell a student that, okay, because your colleague X, Y, and Z is not agreeing to the mask mandate, you're going to dismiss the entire lab and you will not get a chance to do an experiment and instead they will give you a pre-packaged data for you to analyze. That is That doesn't seem fair. So that is what my concerns are all about in terms of how can we keep it more fair mm-hmm. for the students who are showing up and also deal with the students who don't want to create the DNAS methods from the Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that students on the fringe are being hurt by this. Um, Excuse me, or by by policies that allow or or tell us to cancel class early. So, like, if I have, like, a couple-hour break between classes and I'm a commuter student and I'm staying on campus because I have a lab at, you know, 4 o'clock and I I go there and uh, a person in my class is refusing to, to wear their mask and class ends early... Um, that means that I've, I've spent time on campus unnecessarily, putting myself at risk, uh, number one. And then number two, if, if I'm a student who's also working um, and I have a job that allows me to pick up shifts sort of spontaneously, uh, then I'm, I'm, losing, I'm losing money that way. Um, because now, like, what, what could have been, you know, an extra two or three hours working, you know, wherever... Um, I'm just kind of stuck at home <laughs> um, because because of that person. Or if I'm a commuter, or if I just came to campus for that one class and I had a long drive, or um, you know, and a lot of classes that are are talking about like sensitive stuff that's happened over the summer, right? With all the people who have to address the riots and the protests, and and now maybe can't because somebody is like <laughs> the mask is nonsense. And and now, like, what are you going to do? You know, like it's I I just see all kinds of ways that students are are going to lose out on opportunities. Yeah, and it's crazy that all of this will come down to a mask, right? <laughs> and it's just just it's just the idea of it is so asinine to me. Yep, I know, I know, right? Like, <laughs> I I've been I've taught in places that are very. Um, that have a very strong gun culture, like including where I'm at now, and I've always worried about, like, 
what's going to happen on like the first day of hunting season if a student brought a rifle to class and like, there's there's like a possibility of that right because um, I know it would freak me out and I know I would I would like I'm so uncomfortable around guns that I'd be like nope class is over I'm gonna go cry <laughs> but and like this is gonna be what drives me out of academia was the gun thing but now it's like this might be what pushes me into a completely different career path because of these these stupid masks and people people acting like this is such an incredible sacrifice to have to make over a couple ounces of cotton like give me a break this is so I, I just don't understand how how people like this also think that they could have survived like you know meat rationing during World War II or or anything like that like don't turn your lights on because we might get bombed um, but no I'm gonna turn my lights on anyway because it's my right like I don't I don't get it so hey, hey. Matt Vogel is here how you doing Matt Good, good. Yeah, sorry about that. I tried to plug it up on my phone, and I couldn't hear anything, so... Um, no worries. Um, this is... Uh, we're just talking pandemic stuff. Super... <laughs> super relaxing. <laughs> super chill. Um, so how are you doing? Me? Matt, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm, you know, trying to balance all the fun stuff that parenthood, pandemic, course prep, all of that throws at us, so... <laughs> Yep. So my, my one-year-old just went down for a nap. We'll see how long that lasts. If you hear screaming, you have to sign off. Uh, that's that's fine. I uh, I have a two-year-old. Uh, she's somewhere. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> she's around. <laughs> my wife had them out in uh in the backyard before. So hopefully that's all quiet. So uh, like, what's your? Sorry to put you on the spot, Matt. But uh, like. I just logged in, man. I know, I know, I know. It's like gotcha podcasting. <laughs> so how has how the pandemic treated, like, your, like, how has how your, what's your reaction been like in terms of, like, adapting your job and your, your approach to, to work, your thoughts on work? I, I have learned how to prioritize much better than I ever have, and I've learned how to say no and be okay with that. Yeah. And so in terms of prioritizing things, I mean, I don't think I've focused on research now in five months. It's just teaching, getting my students through, and, and that's really it. So that's my job now. I'm also not doing all of those extra little things I used to do, like reviewing manuscripts. I'll take on one a month and leave it at that, no more. Um, yeah, that's it. And then just focused on my kids, really. I have a five-year-old at home, a two-year-old at home. We're not putting them in daycare. We're not putting them in school in the fall. And so now my time is spent trying to figure out how the heck that's going to work. And I don't know about you, Andy, but are you guys doing pods? I was just introduced to a pod idea. And... Uh, I, I heard about pods. Uh, we're not, we're not going to do it. Um, so I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old. Our two-year-old is going to go back to daycare two days a week. Um, our six-year-old is starting first grade. Um, she's going back in person because she hated online kindergarten. Was as a as a family was one of the worst experiences of parenting. I, I would put online kindergarten up there with like every bad flu bug and every like ter- like mystery you know infant. 
disease that seems like the end of the world or whatever. Like, online kindergarten sucked so much. And the prospect of doing online first grade, I I can't. I, I can't <laughs> bring myself to it. And I know that we're going to... I mean, it, it's like an open secret that like we're going to be online eventually. But I... I want her to have a little bit of in-person um, to get her out of the house. I live in the middle of nowhere, is the other thing. Uh, the population of my town is about 10,000. Uh, our, our number of cases in town has always been pretty low. Um, last I checked the Department of Health, I think since they started tracking in, in Pennsylvania, it was been at like 130 or so, um, so pretty, pretty slight, um, their school district has said that, um, so there's three buildings, if, if any student tests positive in any building, they're going to close the building for two to five days to completely scrub it down, um, so, like, I, I think that's manageable for us, if I live someplace any bigger, I would be like, nope, we're, we're doing online first grade and it's going to suck and we're all going to hate it and we're going to figure out a way to do it. But for here, for what I really anticipate just being like four weeks, um, I think it's okay. Sure. And then do you guys have a big... Imagine that you have a college population coming back any day now. Yeah, yep. Um, Wilkes draws most of our students from New York and New Jersey and Maryland. Okay. Um, so, uh, it's interesting, too, because when we went online in March, students were pissed. Like, this sucks. Why are we doing this? We're not going to learn as much. Um, and I had a lot of colleagues who way overcompensated and made their classes, like, ridiculously hard. Uh, and so, part of the reason, originally I was going to do half online and half, like, hybrid. Um, and... In the time since I made that decision, like the students who are really advocating to come back in person have, have had a total 180 and are like, nope, online. Like, it's safer. Um, I don't trust the university. I don't trust <laughs> the other students. On, we, I mean, but we're, we're a small school. We don't have a Greek system. We're Division III. Um, and even the, the players on the team, on the football team, who like, basically are our frat stand-in, like, the football house is, is, like, our frat house. Even some of them are like, nope, like, I don't want to come back. I don't want to play. I don't want anything to do with this. We had originally planned to, our conference originally was going to still have um, all fall sports. And our, our fall athletes were like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, we're Division three. Like, there's <laughs> there's zero reason for us to, to play. Um, I mean, there were, when we eventually did cancel, I mean, a couple of students were, were livid, but, like, again, we're Division three. Like, your, your pro prospects coming to Wilkes University are slim to none. So, unfortunately, some of them don't understand that. Um, but, yeah, like, the city of Wilkes-Barre population is very small, like, less than 40,000. Um, the students from the universities account for a couple thousand of that. Uh, so I, I do anticipate, like, there being problems once they come back. Um, people, like, administrators, 
who became administrators for the pay raise and not because they felt like they are good leaders are now being put in positions where they have to make leadership decisions and are panicking. And it's just become like a major, like hot potato. Like we're just going to pass the buck around until the governor or the president says you can go online. <laughs> because I don't want to be the one responsible for for having to make that decision because I didn't become an administrator to lead. I, I got it for the parking space and the Volvo and the... <laughs> <laughs> the pay raise. <laughs> That's why. Not to lead. God, no. Heavens, no. I didn't become associate vice president to lead. <laughs> Give me a break. Like, it's not... It's it's And it's maddening. And, I mean, that's been... I see some of that, honestly, at my school. Um, and other people I've talked to. Just, like, university presidents who are bending over backwards to pretend like there's no problem. <laughs> It's it's such it's such a case of like the emperor has no clothes that <laughs> and any other year besides twenty twenty this would be such an obvious scandal, but we know tomorrow that you know, the president's going to appoint like a goldfish to run the post office or something like that and that's gonna be <laughs> the newest problem. <laughs> no, he hasn't, no. Um, not since the Friday this past Friday massacre. Um, so what about, like, so let's try to frame this more positively, <laughs> not just by airing my grievances for people to listen to. Um, what are, are, are there ways that you've been able to adapt your teaching that you think are, are actually better, um, than they, they would have been otherwise coming out of this? Any, anybody, as anybody. I'm still working on it. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that yet. Um, maybe in, in a few weeks I'll have a better answer for it. But, um, yeah, I don't know yet. I have no idea. I'm teaching a class for the first time. I'm teaching labs for the first time. So I don't know what the students will enjoy. What the students will and I have, I'm trying to build in a lot more activities for the students to do in terms of them focusing on trying to solve some problems and see if they can map out a strategy to do an experiment. That is what I'm trying to do, but I don't know how that will work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think for me, I've realized that a lot of like the traditional methods are are were only in place because it was like that was what we always did, right? Like the the memorize everything for a test approach to learning, like it's so <laughs> it just doesn't work. Like it's I think it's really ineffective, um, and I I think moving online and seeing the the lengths to, that people have gone to try to enforce that model and saying like we're gonna make you buy cameras and record yourselves taking the test and, and everything. Um, or even even some of the stuff that's come out of, like, states trying to do their, their bar exams the past few weeks. Um, and all of the trouble that has come from that. And the realization of, like, or, like, the, the movements for diploma privilege and stuff like that. Uh, if, so if you're not aware, like, the bar is obviously a big just gatekeeping exercise. Uh, and states unable to have the bar exam in person are facing petitions now from graduating law students to give them 
like the right to practice as a lawyer um, until such a time as the bar is up or just to like waive the bar this year and it's, it's creating a lot of uh, harumphing <laughs> from people who are really in the gatekeeping business um, uh, and so I think like a lot of that stuff that higher ed does has now been really been exposed yes I also think I will say though it is um, forcing me to be creative, more creative as I prep for teaching online this semester. Um, I mean, before prior to this, I had already started to, in some of my courses, do away with um, traditional exams. So, um, and especially now going online, I will not be doing exams. So really getting creative about other ways of quote-unquote testing students, um, you know, using many projects instead, uh, you know, as a way for them to apply their learnings. So I will say that it's, you know, in that regard, it's forcing me to rethink the way that I have taught, um, rethink the way that I, I used to think, you know, certain things were effective, and now having to do it online, realizing mm, maybe that wasn't effective after all as much as I thought. Not just, you know, because I'm moving online, but because as a, you know, just overall. So it is forcing me to, you know, to, to really challenge myself as an instructor to mm-hmm. try different things with my courses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I've, I realized how much, like how I would use class time. Uh, I, I would use it, I mean, there would be plenty of days of lecture, but my students were also very good at learning how to sidetrack me. Right, and I think that's something that all of us have. Like, there's all of us have our our uh, triggers, (laughs) or there's there's ways to sidetrack us to send us off onto whatever topic, and and so like I would do that, um, kind of intentionally, I think, to give students a break. Um, And then I would use class as a like a time to check in, like make sure stuff is going okay. And so now that I don't have that class time, I'm thinking about okay, well, how am I going to use X number of hours per week? to have them do stuff while also being able to like work in those like mental health breaks for them um other learning opportunities ways to to give them like the opportunity to tell me what's on their mind what are they concerned about what's happening in the news that they want to talk about um is difficult when you're not in person um while then also moving away from like the traditional exam even like research paper type stuff uh, to take full advantage of like this new learning space um, as a challenge uh, that I don't think a lot of people are really willing to rise to, um, which is part of what exposes like a lot of bad past practices that we've had. You know, when you're when you're forced to do something publicly, then it's like, oh wow, like this is actually kind of embarrassing. <laughs> It's one thing when it's only my 30 students who know that I'm doing this, but now that, like, the whole world might see my my awful lecture style or whatever else, like, I should probably... <laughs> I should probably care more about what's happening in my classes because maybe people aren't actually learning and aren't getting the, the several thousand dollars of tuition uh, that they're paying for out of this. Um, I don't know. There's Kevin Gannon wrote this great book called Radical Hope about, like, different teaching models that I've been reading and, like, thinking about how it applies to my stuff just using this as a way to, <laughs> uh, like, rethink stuff. So, I don't know. It's, yeah, I got nothing. I got, I just totally, the, the train was here, and then it just, 
that's left. But on time, though, because somebody else is going to join our conversation and I can ambush. Yeah, so with me, I'm in a little different situation. When I started at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, my former job, many years ago, they were just moving to online delivery. And as the new guy, I foolishly agreed to develop stats class online. (laughs) You know, all of this changing in my thinking and so on. So grateful for two reasons. One, I think about each a little differently, but even better, I had all these videos of 50 pounds lighter without a beer teaching stats. I just uploaded those. They got me through. So, so some of the things I do in my online classes that are different, and I'm, I'm still adapting. But in the statistics and research methods, I consider those to be more skills-based courses. And I, I can't just give them an activity because somebody can't open a textbook and figure it out, or I'm not clever enough as a faculty member to say, all right, here's some stuff, we'll do something creative with it, but come back and demonstrate the point testers, right? So instead, I just record some videos, but instead of having midterms and final exams, I do what are called learning assessments, or just these learning checks that happen regularly, um, they're due at any point in the week. And that's what I grade them off of, and that, that worked quite well. So it's not the rote memorization, it's watch some videos, do some practice problems on your own, submit them to me, I'll give you feedback, and then here's what little counts, it's learning assessments. And then I've also learned teaching online, like flexibility is key, and that's something I think a lot of people don't appreciate. Mm-hmm. In the traditional sense, students take classes online because they can't make a regular schedule, right? It's much more flexible for the complex lines people lead. And I think that's even more true now with COVID. We have no idea what our students are doing, what their family responsibilities, employment responsibilities, and so on. And so, like, moving into this fall semester, I've done away, I was actually just going to the syllabus before I locked on. I'm doing away with all deadlines. And they're going out the window. And I have no tests for my undergraduates, which sounds like what you guys are doing as well. I have a PhD seminar, I'll still try to hold those students to a higher level, but I'm struggling with figuring out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the whole deadline thing I um especially at the um end of last semester, well, you know, mid semester when we all went online, I really just did away with deadlines then and because it was just like, All right, well, we're all now we're all figuring this out at the same time. You know, I, I will set a deadline just to, just to, in an attempt to keep the students on track, mm-hmm. but I did not hold them to that deadline. I'm just like, you know, if you, as long as you get everything to me by the last day of class, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I got to have something to grade in order to give you a grade, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think, uh, and, and several of my students had emailed me and said, you know, I really appreciate you being so flexible some of my professors were not and now I, you know I'm back home have to work and all of this stuff and so it, it really helped so I will implement some of that this semester um, I won't be as lax with deadlines you know so I won't say give me everything by the end of the semester because that's just going to be ridiculous 15 weeks at the end of the semester trying to grade stuff but um, 
you know, I'm not going to be as rigid with those deadlines. So if someone misses misses a deadline, then it won't be like, okay, well, you're going to lose 10 points or whatever on it. It's just you got to get it to me um, at some point within the next couple of weeks in order for me to have something to break because you still have to, you know, assess students on, on things and so on and so forth. But I will, yeah, I'm definitely um, um, am not going to be rigid with deadlines. Yeah. Three of my classes have weekly writing projects that are meant to build up to a larger thing. Um, my intro social classes, I'm, I'm calling it a running exam um, in place of like standard exams, but it really is just like one discussion question a week for ten weeks. Um, and then uh, another class, I'm teaching like a, a crime history course um, called Murder, Monsters, and Mayhem. And so they're supposed to write reactions and reflections to the cases that we cover that week um, with the goal of trying to find, like, a larger narrative um, over the 20th century. Um, but I know, I like, I recorded the videos today to, like, introduce the assignments. And as I'm talking, like, I, I can hear, like, all of the, like, the email notifications for, like, I need more time on this. <laughs> like, why am I creating this, this thing? Um, and it, it's really just... For the students who need deadlines, um, they need that kind of hanging over them. Yeah. Some, these will tell you that anyway. Um, it's really for them. But I, I hope that I'm not in a position where it's it's our semester is going to end right before Thanksgiving. So I hope it's not Thanksgiving, and then somebody's like, "Hey, I haven't written anything for the whole since August. Uh, can I just give it to you now? Because um, that'll be brutal." Um, but everything else, I mean, deadlines. I. I what do you think about like when people say that deadlines are a way to teach students about the real world? Sure. <laughs> Listen, I'm in the real world and I have so many deadlines. I know. I mean, you can talk to my editor right now. She's still waiting for my paper. So, <laughs> like, what what faculty member? Like, who is the faculty member who has never asked for an extension? Never, like, never completely week. forgotten about it. Something <laughs> like, yeah, come on, <laughs> give, give me a break. Like, it happens constantly. And, of course, like, whatever jobs they go into, deadlines move all the time. Like, yeah. so who are we now to be, like, these these enforcers? Like, it's it just gets in the way of, like, what we're supposed to be doing. Right. And, and that, like, I think that's a good example of, like, a bad past practice that now the online or online slash pandemic teaching has really <sighs> exposed. So to play devil's advocate here, though, what if you have a class where the knowledge generation is cumulative? And so think statistics is probably the best example in our line of work. And if students start to fall behind really early on, like not doing the homeworks mm -hmm. and so on, at what point do you know to intervene as uh, the professor in the class, right? And so I can see from that point of view, if it's not to hold them to this is how it works in the real world, it's mm -hmm. more if you fall behind early on in the semester, I guarantee you're going to fail. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Like, I, I think stats is totally the. Uh, oh man, it's the outlier. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's put it in the fact that it, a lot of STEM classes also build on what they have learned mm -hmm. in prior semesters. Yeah. And what they're learning in this semester to go to the finale, let's say, the, the big final mm -hmm. component, and many of my students are basically pre-med students, and they have to retain 
or they have to be used to learning the material in a very in-depth manner so that they can do well on their MCATs. Mm -hmm. And if the MCAT score does not come good, they will blame on the faculty members who have taught them the key subjects that they are supposed to know. Mm -hmm. So creating assignments, I'm trying to build in a lot more number. I'm increasing the number of assignments in the sense that I'm having 20 assignments that they can drop five in the end. So it, it is more, it's not, it's for me to keep them on track. But if they don't meet any number, they can drop five of them. So it gives them the flexibility saying that, okay, we have some buffer in case we are not able to reach the number that we want. Similarly, the exams, I'm having three midterms and they can drop one midterm completely. So that is what how I am trying to think about building a flexibility. Mm -hmm. So that may or may not be right. But that is my thought process right now. So that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Now with your Teaching, I don't know how it is at your university, but I'm thinking back to organic chemistry in the early 2000s. And that was the gatekeeper course. And I could be wrong, but my understanding was that faculty would only pass a certain percentage of students. It was almost a their role. No, that's not the case. At least, at least in biochemistry that I teach, I don't have a gatekeeper now. I just tell them that you need to show me enough efficiency. So I have levels uh, in terms of you are aware of the material, you get a D. You know the material, you get a C. The efficient, you get a B. If you're excellent, you get an A. So it, it, so it depends upon your performance. Last semester, I had 93% of my class passing. So I would, I would say that it's a good percentage to say it's passing with more than 50 getting A's and B's. So I don't do the gatekeeper thing. I, I want the students to do well. They learn, they move forward. Great. I like that approach. I, I like that a D is being aware of it because I'm thinking back to all of the. I started off as a computer science major and so I was very much in a lot of um, those types of courses and I, I would say that at best you could describe me as being vaguely aware <laughs> Of what was happening in those classes when I when I chose to go to those classes, <laughs> at, at best vaguely aware. I'm here. It's sciency. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so it depends the concept, which is throughout the class, and you don't know the answer to that concept in the final thing. I want. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that is my thinking or my. Yeah, I, yeah, and I, which is which is totally great. Like, I, I think there should be less gatekeeping. I'm, I'm like dwelling on um, the idea of like classes that do have that cumulative approach, and, and like where else in, in like my in our field does that happen? Um, and like thinking a lot about like how how I wonder how history classes are adapting to this because that's like actually literally like the accumulation of stuff, and like how can you expect students to write a paper summarizing like. I don't know the causes of the American Revolution. <laughs> if if they uh, still haven't done the readings on like the Boston Massacre yet, you know what I mean. Like, so th there obviously has to be 
I guess I guess all this is to say that like the pandemic is making us change how we do the incentivization, right? Okay. To move through stuff. Um, instead of just the traditional tests and attendance policies and, and whatever else that now have to, in many cases, be thrown out the window. Now what do we do? And, like, <laughs> just being asked to build, like, a brand new academia, whole cloth, um, yeah. uh, in an incredibly turbulent political and social t- and economic time <laughs> is super easy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, I will say for my field, criminal justice, it's um, you know it's it's and especially now, um, I, I will say I won't have a shortage of material to draw from. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't need a textbook. I can just use current events. Hey, here's what. <laughs> so, but that, that's both a blessing and a curse because I have so much to draw from now that I'm. I'm as I try to um, put it all together, I'm like, well, shit, like, I, <laughs> I have so much to use now. What am I not going to use? So it's yep. both a good and a, and a bad position to be in. Yeah. And it's difficult to, to teach current events, too, right? Because yeah. we don't know how the story's going to end. <laughs> we might not yeah, have all the information. Um, we live in a culture that demands, like, hot takes immediately. Mm-hmm. And students are going to have been exposed to a lot of, to a lot of that, and are going to cl- are going to come to class um, prejudiced in one way or the other. Right. So. Right. So this this is going to be fun, and I put fun in air quotes there. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I'm teaching race, class, gender, and crime, and in the video I recorded today to to introduce them to the class, I was like, you know, we're I'm making this much more student centered this semester, and not just going to do typical lecture. And, and for those of you who want to talk about the protests, we will have ample time to talk about the protests. And for those of you who want to talk about any kind of crime coming out of the out of the White House, we will have opportunities, I think, in spades to talk about any kind of um, alleged or actual criminal behavior coming out of or associated with the Trump administration. Um, and like, like I agree, like it's not going to be pleasant for anybody. Uh, I don't, but in part because like I don't want to deal with it myself, you know. I don't want to go and talk about this clown. Like I have to deal with him nonstop. I want a day where I don't have to think about this guy. Right. And now it's going to be a semester. Like as we get closer to the uh, closer to the election, just zeroed in on crime and deviance in Washington D.C. Right. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to do it. Right there. Oh, I know. I know, and it would be so well attended, and it would be so contentious oh and disgusting God. every day. <laughs> you teach that. I don't want to teach it. <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah. I, I mean, I've taught contemporary issues before, but I've always grounded that in, like, we're going to write letters to legislators, so whatever kind of nonsense you think you're going to bring to the class, be prepared to put it in a serious letter to the congressman. <laughs> And I mean that that usually tamps it down. So how about stats? So what what are you planning on? How is that? Are you related to the epidemiology that is going on, or how do you make that to be current? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm I'm not. I will do a little bit about crime trends. And actually, I, I should take that back. I have two classes. I'm thinking about the undergraduate slash master stats class. 
And so I'll talk a little bit about how we can measure these sort of upticks in violent crime and these downticks in property crime, the, the first being, of course, protests, and the second being during the lockdown that we are on. Um, that's about it. In terms of epidemiological model building, model making, I don't really get into that with undergraduates. I pretty much stop at regression in ANOVA, and that's more than enough for social science undergrads, pretty much anywhere. My, uh, my PhD seminar is an interesting one, and I'm still grappling with what exactly to do. It's called Population Dynamics and Crime, and I look at demographic forecasting, essentially, so demographic models, population change, composition movement, and so on, and what we might anticipate that will do for both short-term and long-term crime trends. And of course, baked into that is going to, it'll be adjacent to epidemiology for sure, and there are a few weeks at the end of the semester where I'm talking about spatial patterns in urban areas, and which once the COVID data becomes available, I think we're going to be flabbergasted by these transmissions from neighborhood to neighborhood or realistically from prison to neighborhood and back is what interests me. And so I think there'll be space for that. I just, it's overwhelming right now to think about what November's going to look like just in my life, let alone in my, in my classes. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll cross that bridge probably in a few weeks once I get the rest of the recordings done. You cross that bridge kicking and screaming. Back <laughs> well, there. I was going to pose before, I'm not sure what your guys' administrations look like, uh, but historically when I've taught and everywhere I've taught, nobody's really asked me what's in my class. I don't have rubrics, I don't have people reviewing my materials. I just had to complete like a self-awareness checklist that went to my university's provost or president's office, and it was like a 25-item rubric where I had to say yes or no, I had met all of these various uh, requirements for online instruction. I didn't understand what half of them was. Right? <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't know. That sounds like a CYA thing to me. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> that seems like, yeah. I haven't seen that yet, but I would not be surprised if SUNY does that eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't usually, like, use rubrics for stuff, and I think that's probably a weakness of my teaching. I have, a, I have a tendency to be like, here's a big idea. I'm going to give you really vague instructions because I want to see how you handle it. Uh, mm-hmm. Go out and do it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, like, the students who need to have, like, every step of the way outlined for them hate that. And I'm like, no, like, I, I need to know steps A through Z. Like, how am I supposed to construct this to build, to create an A? Like, I don't know, man. Just go out and make a podcast. <laughs> do it good. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... I, I don't know, like, trying, and, like, especially now with on essays, like, I'm doing a lot of, like, the one class is making a podcast and making a victim memorial. Um, my social 101s have been told, is this an on essay, do something about a social problem. I, I don't know how to come up with a rubric for that anyway. Like, is it good? Did they put thought into it? <laughs> and then it's probably an A. Uh, does it look like something they slapped together the night before? Probably not going to be an A, you know? So... Uh, and I don't know. I like. I also think I do that too. To put, I th- I think we because of accreditation we we focus way too much on assessment and like trying to uh, come up with some objective type of assessment when we know that's kind of impossible to do <laughs> because as instructors we have we have biases and and whatever else and two people are going to grade something differently. Um, so I don't know. I 
maybe to be kind of rebellious, just push back and say like, here's some, here's some nonsense I saw on Twitter. Let's make it, let's make it an assignment. <laughs> it sounds like fun. <laughs> but I mean, the cl- the first time I did it, the first classes I did it last fall, they were thrilled to not have blue books and to not have to not write another literature review. And I was thrilled to not have to read another, you know, three dozen lit reviews on divorce and delinquency or sports and crime. Like, I'm just, I'm bored (laughs) with those types of assignments. And so uh, when I get bored, then things are going to get weird in class. And so let's just go out and do some stuff. I'm sure in 10 years I'm going to be like, let's go back to blue books. I'm tired of of having to read any more bad poetry then. (laughs) So... Um, so I think that probably seems like a natural end. I think we're tired and tapped out <laughs> and, and everything. Um, so thank you all so much. Uh, do you want to plug where people can find you on, on Twitter? I know, Rama, you have a big undergraduate lab, or undergraduate research project to plug, so I guess we can start with you. So the undergraduate research program that I run is called as the Four-Year Research Engagement Program. And it is from the University of Oklahoma. Uh, first year students are start doing research in spring semester, and they tend to either stay in the same lab or disappear into the tenure after their first uh, semester of experience because they did not like research. <laughs> uh, but overall, we are currently in a summer, and so it is a good program, and I am very excited about it. You can find me on Twitter at uh, fire, or you fire, and that's the Twitter account name. Okay. I generally tend to post a lot about research opportunities and internships, as well as some NSF deadlines or uh, fellowships, or whatever comes out. So that is what my Twitter material consists of. Awesome, uh, Bria. Where can people find you? I'm at. Dr. B. Willingham, very original there, and (laughs) I tweet about whatever is on my mind. I have no filter when it comes to Twitter, as you can attest to, Um, and and, I I rarely tweet about what I'm teaching and and, and what I'm researching um, for particular reasons, but... I, you know, I, I would say that you will find my, my Twitter entertaining. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can, can confirm. Uh, Matt, where can people find you? Um, I'm at MattVogel311. That's uh, my Twitter handle. I don't really tweet that much. I'm just getting into it this year. It's for my public-facing academic thing, so... I couldn't even describe to you what I tweet about. It's just a hodgepodge of pictures of my kids, some weird stuff I read, weird retweets. But the other thing I will plug, though, if I have a quick second, I just uh, started a historical criminology division of the ASC with uh, Brendan Dooley and Mike Campbell. We're getting signatures. We have enough signatures now for the petition to go through, and the ASC will look at it. But if anybody out there is listening to this, uh, that would be at hcriminology is the Twitter account for that, and we'll keep folks updated through that platform as things develop. Yeah, very excited 
about that. I have not been an active member of ASC in, in a while, and I was slowly building up, working up the nerve to, to rejoin. But when I saw that we're going to have a division of historical criminology and to be able to get in on that from the ground floor, uh, I will be shelling out my whatever the exorbitant fee is <laughs> to rejoin is, you know, um, so I can get in on that because I'm, I am, I've been learning historical criminology, um, just self-guided with this weird obsession that I have. So I'm happy to finally have people to talk to about this stuff. So hey, repeat that um, Twitter handle at H, like H for history, H criminology. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be so good. Um, all right, thank you everybody for taking time today. Thank you. Y'all have a good day. Have a good day. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.